and we all work slightly differently. And so for neurodiversity, that phrase for me kind of is encapsulated by the fact that we need to respect and understand and see that we all have different kinds of brains and all brains are valued and matter. In terms of employment, neurodivergent people are discriminated against at so many stages of the employment application process and often it's not they're not deliberately discriminated against it they just are i i just want every young person to have that opportunity to be able to understand who they are and what their place and and how they they can work on their strengths and and manage and get the support that they need and advocate for the support that they need in, in the areas that they have challenged. Just. Hello, and welcome to the Changing Lives Through Learning podcast. I'm Matt Jackson. For this episode, we're talking about neurodiversity, which is something that is very close to my heart and is increasingly being discussed in education and employment in the UK. I'm delighted to be joined by three extra special guests who have agreed to share their knowledge and experience of neurodiversity. First of all, let me introduce Richard Lamplew from my employment passport. Hi Richard. Hello, hello. And Lucy Smith from Inclusive Change. Hi Lucy. Hi there, thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. And my colleague from Open Awards, Richie Phillips. Hello Matt. Right, so welcome everybody. Lovely to have you with us today. So we're here to talk about neurodiversity. So I wondered if anybody would like to just volunteer and explain what that is just for people who are maybe unsure of that term. Okay, if I start with the basic premise, neurodiversity for me describes the infinite variation of human brains, right? There are, if not billions of ways in which us as human beings process things about the world around us. And we all work slightly differently. And so for neurodiversity, that phrase for me kind of is encapsulated by the fact that we need to respect and understand and see that we all have different kinds of brains and all brains are valued and matter. Excellent. You got anything to add, Richard? It's a difficult word to define. I sometimes say with the young people I work with and the employability sessions I design, and I, I talk about our brains perhaps being wired differently. And uh, I make an analogy between like my recording studio with lots of analog leads going everywhere. Um, but I think what, what's key is it's difficult just with, with one word like neurodivergence or neurodiversity to, to then think, well, within that, there are so many differences. That said, I think it's a useful word, neuro, and I know there's some confusion about how it's used, but I certainly don't think we should get too wrapped up about what I always say to the young people I support is don't get too wrapped up in in words it's what you're comfortable with that's most important. I would agree with that as well I think there's a there's lots of terminology that comes around this that people can get hung up about and the thing is the vocabulary is 
changing all the time as well. So, for example, you've got neurodiversity that is encompassing everybody who uh, and that's that difference in everybody's brains but then you've got neurodivergent which is people with diagnosed conditions or you've got neurotypical or even that's now changing to neuromajority <laughs> so why do we think it's important that we do need to have more understanding about this well in terms of employment neurodivergent people are discriminated against at so many stages of the employment application process and often it's not they're not deliberately discriminated against it they just are i know neurodivergent young people i'm thinking of one young person i support who who is autistic and she can have um, a very, very unpleasant experience trying to apply online for things. Well, me as a neurotypical person, I get incredibly frustrated when an application form doesn't download or something's not making sense. From what I've certainly experienced supporting young people into paid work, the internet often makes it more difficult and a lot of that is i think around the fact that there has been a lack of understanding what do you think the the lack of understanding is is it the way the technology is used or is it that there's not support to use that technology or is it a well it, it it's there's something about the tech but there's other things that just about employers are just assuming oh well we'll have a group interview online let's say well, that a lot of people are really uncomfortable. A lot of neurodivergent people are very, are very un uncomfortable with those kind of concepts. Um, so I think it's actually often the way that the thought processes around, uh, well, puts, the, the way I often try to explain it is I understand most most of the young people I support, they communicate differently to each other, but differently to neurotypical people. And jobs always, almost always, involve an interview process. And interviews are all about communication. So even if the job itself involves very little communication, they have to communicate. So it feels like that there isn't enough reasonable adjustment around that compared to a physical disability or a sensory impairment. I suppose it's a little bit like the assessment system in the UK where there's only sort of one way of assessing learners in schools. It's that same type of thing. There's just that one way of assessing an interview when there's lots of other things that you could actually assess that are more appropriate for the role that they're doing that maybe that's where employment needs to sort of start to look at changing that's not just for neurodivergent people what are you actually looking what are the skills you're looking for yeah, and yeah. is is that that sort of group interview or um 
uh, that communication is that part of what that role's about and if you're exactly. Um, exactly it's the same sort of principle mm -hmm. that we've got these things that we've set up as what we call as the norm but things in employment's changing so much that that, that we need to look at my, making that yeah. system diverse as well I think if if we are genuine about seeking creative solutions to our myriad problems then we really need to tap into some of the areas where neurodiversity might take us and if it means doing things differently then so be it and i suppose the definition of doing things the same all the time and not changing is almost a definition of madness so i think it's if anything there's the reason that we need to start changing that there's, there's things that we need to do to to help people to be able to have more fulfilling lives and if these are the things that uh, and that change helps to do that then i think that's uh, that's a, a, the first way uh, so we've talked about that there's lots of other words and conditions that fall under that term neurodivergent so i just want to go through what those sort of terms are so that everybody who's listening knows what we're sort of talking about so you've you've got autism or autism spectrum or whichever way people choose to choose to say it um, ADHD, so Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, sometimes also known as ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. I don't like the word disorder, but it is there in the, the diagnostic manuals, so that's that's the way it, it kind of comes out sometimes. Um, dyslexia is one of the more commonly known forms of neurodivergence. Uh, dyspraxia, which is a developmental coordination difference or delay. Um, and more and more people are dyspraxic than you probably realise. And for each of these categories, I could give you um, celebrities or people that you'll know. Uh, Tourette's, for instance, falls underneath that neurodiversity or neurodivergence umbrella. Um, and only this weekend, Lewis Capaldi, so you know when we recorded this now, um, Lewis Capaldi was at Glastonbury and we, all of us who watched it, I was in tears watching a young person on stage coping with his Tourette's and coping with with neurodivergence on stage in front of thousands and thousands of people um but there's there's an example of some of the different people that we will meet who are who are neurodivergent and and obviously there's challenges within ever any role that you have and that just shows that you know that people still um they have grown up with those that challenges and people still will always have those challenges it just doesn't go away so i know that there's lots like you talk about the adhd people think that oh it's only they've only got this hyperactive deficit in school but no it stays with no. them through the whole of their life and it's it's something that's part of them um and it's something that people who are in that neurotypical need to realize that that's it's it's something that they have to deal with and they work their way through and that's why you get lots of people who are in those maybe the public eye who have who've talked about it and, and other people in the workforce who have learned to deal with that and to cope with that in their own way just like lewis capaldi did with his tourettes on stage he's found a way of getting over that sometimes it's it's everybody else's reaction to that that i think's uh, important to, to people to be a more understanding of those sorts of things i think around. it's really just want to make a point as well that there will be many people who are adults who are neurodivergent and don't yet realize or don't know mm -hmm. and haven't had the opportunity to find out who they are and learn to live a life 
in a way that supports them because they've never had that chance. They've always been told that they have to fit in or they have to be something else and they mask and they've and, and many, many adults I work with are diagnosed later in life. Autistic, ADHD and dyspraxia. Dyscalculia is another one, which is a dyslexia of numbers. Mm. Um, uh, and many adults in particular will have had a lifetime of masking and not realising that this is why things are a struggle for them because they've never had that opportunity to find out who they really are. You've just talked about those big those big ones that you talked about. What yeah. are the other ones that are not so well known now out that fit into this category? So dyscalculia is one of them. So yeah. the, the numbers dyslexia, that's that's one of them that, that will come out. Acquired neurodiversity. So not all of us are born neurodivergent. Um, some people might acquire neurodiversity through their life, through an accident, through a mental health, through operation, through a medical issue. Um, even long COVID is being talked about as something that is is part of the neurodivergent umbrella. Um, mental health, as I mentioned, that can mean that we process the world and think of things in different ways. Um, and more and more people are, are thinking about that. OCD, so obsessional compulsive disorder, that's another one that comes under there. Um, and I think I've, I've mentioned most of most of the other ones, but the umbrella is there to give us a guide and a, an idea of, okay, well, what, what, how might we look at things in a different way? And ideally, for me, in a, in a utopian future, we wouldn't have the labels and we wouldn't have a, an umbrella and we'd all respect everybody's different brains. Mm -hmm. However, I think it is important to support those people who have brains who work in different ways and need support to understand how we can, um, how we, and, I don't want to use the word labels again, but sometimes we do need to, to, mm, yeah. to look at that. And, and I think just going off of what you've just said there, there's there's another area that's uh, that people maybe it hasn't really quite got into that, into those labels, into this sort of forum yet. But we're talking about things like Alzheimer's and dementia. Yes. And people who are living with those and are working, then yeah. this is another reason why, um, you know, this work to, to around other neurodivergent uh, individuals is so important because some of those things that will support those people might support those people who might be over the early onset of those conditions Absolutely. in the workplace and if we can get people talking about that and people know, looking at how we can uh, adapt to those situations that might help to support those people who are on early uh, onset um, diagnosis and they're trying to navigate that as well as uh, trying to stay in employment and keep those regular things going that they're used to doing is to keep their life uh, being fulfilled and be more meaningful um, uh, if, if things agree. deteriorate. So, I, I think, I, yeah, yeah I was going to say there's, I just, there's, there's one label that we haven't mentioned and it's, it's a biggie or has been for me for many years and that is a learning disability. So, when I and, and I'd be really interested in in Lucy and Matt and Richard your your thoughts on this because when I used to to run my sessions, I would run some sessions in a phrase I don't particularly like special schools for people who would struggle to achieve maybe a level one qualification. They would perhaps be at what I think people call pre-entry level, and I would call that a learning disability and I often I often struggle well are these young people neurodivergent because in the morning I would have run a session at a 
special school and then in the afternoon I'd hop over to a mainstream school but I'd be in a class with what we've been talking about more ADHD young people autistic young people people who could get quite a few qualifications but school was an uncomfortable place for them for all sorts of reasons so I, I just felt I needed to drop that in because well what do you think <laughs> I think I'm agreeing with you I don't like that that term special school I worked in a special school for 13 years so I know how that school operate when I started there it went from a moderate learning difficulties yeah. designation to autism the type of learners that were there um, there was no real difference in terms of ability there was always a range of yeah. ability and I think that's still the same yeah. in what we call in mainstream I think that learning um, difficulty is not necessarily true because have teachers done enough to support that learning to actually put the strategies in place so we, to actually say it's a difficulty I don't think it's quite necessarily true it's maybe a difference or mm. it's a different way of learning or it's a setting that could be that's the reasons why some of those barriers are there it could be personal background there's so many factors that I think you know can't really pinpoint that I'm not comfortable with that term learning difficulty because if they are functioning in some way and doing some things they've obviously learnt them so everything can't be difficult they've got really good strengths really good things that they are exceptional at so to me just because somebody's not good at everything doesn't mean to say that they're a, a lack of a, as an individual so why are we put putting a term that sounds like they've, they've got um, some other bigger issues that are going on there that's that's where my feeling is with that I don't know what you think Richard I I hear what you're saying um where I suppose as uh I don't want to call myself an educator but I'll call myself a, perhaps a an advisor with there's there's a speed of learning that the, the neurodivergent young people uh, who might be ADHD or uh, might be autistic, but my experience with those young people, there's a speed of learning that is, is considerably faster, considerably faster than the young people, than most young people who are at special schools. The ability to retain information. So in terms of the resources I create so I, I create videos and all sorts of things but I'm I I'm aware and I think I'm take this is the right approach that that the materials I give facilitators and teachers and supporters need to be used differently for those two groups of people but that's not to say that that the young people that I would say have a moderate learning disability that there aren't some exceptional talents and potential there i, I think i think already it just shows that uh, there's so much diversity within learning and people that it's very hard to try and put those boxes there isn't it and i yeah. think that's i think that's another reason probably what you thought lucy as well would not have not liking all those um 
definitions and wishing that we didn't have them. And I think I think it's just humans trying to understand those things. But sometimes we have to accept that we can't always grasp and get a firm understanding because people are people. People are different. People yeah. have different strengths, different weaknesses, or it might not even be weaknesses. It might be that they've not had opportunities to develop that into a strength. So, you know, it's a difficult one, really, to try and pinpoint things. I think that's why... Uh, these phrasing like neurodiversity and neurodivergence are important because it's moving away from being specific that medical model that's already um, surrounding this with having the word disorder or condition or those sorts of things that are bracketed around these these sort of different ways of thinking and maybe it's about trying to make sure people are aware that there is more of a blend of different that people have their strengths in different areas and have abilities in different areas that I think we all need to start to embrace more than just a diagnosis or a, an issue or somebody finds something more challenging than somebody else. But I would argue that we all have our own little challenges and sometimes we voice them and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we uh, have, have some sort of resilient mechanism that's within us that would say, well, I still go to an interview that's a face-to-face -face or an online interview, even though I don't really like the situation, I might do that. But then somebody else will say, I can't do that at all. I just can't face that. I can't. And I think it's about respecting those people's differences. And if some things are not relevant to what the outcome should be, I think that's where we've got to start looking at yeah. those strategies and things that we can try and do to, to support people. And, and maybe... You know, I think the other thing is we seem to assume that once somebody's got some sort of issue on day one, that they're always going to have that. And it's not true. There is things that they will develop and everybody develops as they go through life. And after having different experiences and different challenges and changes can happen. So it's that support that I think that's, that's sort of the crux mm. to it, of it, really. I don't, know what, I don't know what you think, Richie. Have you got any thoughts on that? Um, well, yeah. I think we adopted as a society a fairly utilitarian approach to education right through the 20th century. We're now faced with something a little bit different where the greatest happiness in the greatest number no longer applies. What you now have is, is two very different needs within teaching. And I liken it a bit to going off, going up Mount Snowden, for example. There's a way which all the tourists can go and, you know, Auntie Lily can go and not get out of breath. Or, you know, your experienced mountaineers are going to be going up, you know, a, a sheer side of it. And that and that's the sheer side is is plumbing, you know, that seam of talent that's that for me at the moment is is a little bit dormant. And it's such a shame because there's a fine line between, you know, perverse conditions and genius. If you look at, you know, Van Gogh was bipolar. Sylvia Plath was a manic depressive, and Tolstoy was a hypochondriac. Um, Janis Joplin had dysmorphia. James Taylor had a mixture of everything. You know, in order for society to to function, uh, what happens because of cost is that we tend to go with this norms thing, which you which you which you talked about earlier, and in doing that. Um, the, the negative side of that, just to digress a little bit, the, ne the negative side of, of doing that is that um, norms offer up a lot of negative connotations about anything that strays away from that pattern. So when people hear mental health, the, your average Joe public goes, mental health means depression. They go straight to zero and they're thinking Robin Williams and Kurt Cobain 
Um, well, it's not like that. There, there is a there is a vast pool of better ways to do things hiding at the moment. And my worry is the way that the the economy is, and particularly the budgets for education. That how are we going to release what is needed to mine that seam of talent, which is doubtlessly there? So one of my strong beliefs is that I think we need to have positive, affirmative teaching or lessons around neurodiversity in schools. OK, I think they need to start at a very young age. And I think if we do that, then actually we can resolve a lot of mental health issues in later life because we will be allowing and supporting young people to identify with who they are, what they are, what their strengths are and also respect and value other people for their strengths and who they are and what they are. However, to begin this, we might be opening a whole Pandora's box because in order to do that, we have to start asking people to start thinking about themselves and start going, well, what are my needs? What, how do I process information? How do I cope with executive function? How do I cope with planning and organizing myself? And what anxiety do I have about stuff? which sometimes we don't want to open that box and we want no, to keep culturally, it. Culturally, we don't. No, that's right. Exactly. However, I'm going out on a limb here because I've never said this live on a, I've never said this on a, on a, um, a podcast or, or any, anything before. I actually think we desperately need this in order to resolve some of the challenges that we've got coming in the next few years in education and the workplace. Um, and it can be something as simple as, as running a six week course around what is neurodiversity? How does my brain work? If you want to do it in primary, let's talk about, you know, all brains matter. If you want to do it in secondary, we start talking about neurodiversity. We start talking about respect and understanding that people will have different ways of processing the world. And that includes you. Every single one of us do. But we need to respect everybody for the different ways that, that we do stuff. Doesn't mean that we all have to conform but it, it might mean that we start to be more self-aware and understand who we are and, and how we operate a bit better. What do you think, Richard, with the employment side that you deal with? Is that, do you think that's open Pandora's box? <sighs> I wish there was more openness within employers, but I do see it within public sector i mean there there feels there does feel some really useful threads and conversations going on now that that i think there are even like little support groups on websites of neurodiverse teachers and things like that so i think that's that's quite positive but i'm not sure how much that would be happening in, in private companies but i feel progress is being made in the other way. I, I think I see progress, but it tends in public sector, in NHS, and you would hope so because they should surely be a bit more clued up. <laughs> yeah, I do think there is little changes and I suppose little wins, if you like, that are going on. I went to Greater Manchester Forum to do neurodiversity and it was based at Talk Talk. One of the managers there knew about it from their own life style that company they were going to look at how they could support people and i think that's because some people have an experience or have a background in it then that actually and they think about well what would i want my 
child to do and how to how can they get into employment and they start thinking about that process that's where that real change can happen mm. because they then start to find out but i think it's that those other places that don't do that i do feel that universities are sort of starting to open that up and they're starting to work with learning services are now starting to look at how they can support people and they put on special different sessions for people to help with study once once they're in university i think that that level of education starting to talk about it go on richard what was good no well i hope i hope so matt because of the the many parents that i've supported over the years whilst their neurodivergent children who education qualification wise were were always we're going to do quite well at school actually because bright young people but boy when they got to university did they suffer and they dropped out the challenge at the higher education level it, quite often is the amount of undiagnosed young people who are going into higher education but i do also know there's some fabulous universities that are doing I'm amazing sure. work i think the main point i think where this comes from though is the issue of mental health that is the starting point because sometimes it like you're saying lucy that because some of these young people are finding out or discovering things about yeah. themselves in that time when they've moved away from home they've had a transition maybe the transition has brought things forward they're seeking support universities that i've spoke to have taken responsibility to try and support them with that and realize that that is part of that university education and especially as we're, we're, we're sort of moving to more and more things online again that's the purpose of actually having a face-to-face -face university experience because there is other support there that that can be done in person cohesive approach learning is not just about sitting in a classroom with a tutor there is another sense of community that surrounds that on a personal level i talk about my kids quite a bit both of my kids are autistic so both of my children are autistic and my almost 17 year old they tell me every day that they're going to be 17 very soon um their transition and and their journey from understanding who they are they weren't diagnosed until they were 11 years old last day of year six at primary school um didn't get on very well in mainstream secondary school and crashed and burned and and actually left and we educated at home for, for most of their, well, all of their GCSEs. But now, almost 17, they're incredibly self-aware. They've been fortunate enough to find out who they are and how they study and how they cope with the world in, in various different ways. And I just want every young person to have that opportunity to be able to understand who they are and what their place and, and how they can work on their strengths and and manage and get the support that they need and advocate for the support that they need in, in the areas that they have challenge. Just for young people to have that opportunity would just be amazing. Can I throw in a quick resource here that would yes, be really can. good for educators? Okay, so um, I do work with quite a lot of universities and one of the resources that I will point people to in terms of supporting students is from Worcestershire University. They have an area on, on their website called SCALE, S-C-A-L-E. Um, amazing. It's a really good resource for educators. It can help you understand how to devise assessments, learning activities for different types of learners. 
including many neurodivergent learners, and also how you can apply that to different types of lessons and different topics. Amazing resource. I was diagnosed as dyslexic when I was, well, it was beginning of secondary, and this was back in the 1980s. It was sort of an informal diagnosis by a, a friend of a friend, so to speak, of my parents. Um, uh, sort of the the English teacher I had at school thought they'd spotted something. I'd gone through primary school, been able to mask, um, and the English teacher at secondary school saw thought something, and so I went and got this uh, private diagnosis, but it went, uh, nothing happened really from that because the local authority didn't recognise it. I had no support at all through all of my secondary school education. Um, but what I hadn't realised what I was doing was I was actually working out my own learning strategies and my own ways of doing things within that from knowing that I had something that was, this word that was, uh, banded around of dyslexia and I didn't really know what it was affected my mental health all the way through uh, secondary school um, but I actually came out with uh, really relatively good GCSEs um, went on to sixth form and then that's when things started to change because I was able to get a diagnosis we was more it was middle of the 90s um, the internet had just been invented and um, I went for a diagnosis there. They had another assessment. They confirmed it again. And then that's when things started to open up. But when I actually went for support, um, when I actually told them all my strategies that I had, they basically said, well, there's a book here that's just the latest research. And everything that I was talking about was in the book. So I thought, well, that's, that's interesting that I've actually started to look at how I learn and how I learn differently and how I do that and that's where my journey as a teacher started because I realized I was doing that for me and thought well if I can do that for me can I pass that on and so I went into teacher training went into special needs um, and, and did that and was able to um, support lots of uh, young learners who were um, diagnosed with autism and but I used my own previous experience to support me to do that and to be able to look at how how those learners work differently and to support them with those different strengths that they had and how they could try and find a strategy and how they could build it into their own learning so that was my sort of my journey that I went through but what I found um Although I had that bit of support at sixth form, I got a very, I didn't get much support at um, university. Um, although I have gone back and done some things at university in the last two years where I got the support. So I know that's how I know there has been a big change. Um, but what I think that the, the question is that, um, you know, the, the universities are now acknowledging that they've got staff who are neurodivergent already. They are supportive of that, they're encouraging that, and that's all of the higher education. But I feel that that is not in your primary and secondary schools when some of those students are already there. What, the, what they've found uh, is that sometimes when students do a teacher training, they have either have a diagnosis or they know about that when they're in teacher training. But when they go into that school, and they do their placements, there is no reasonable adjustments, there's no support actually in the school for that person. 
Um, and you know, if that person hasn't got that resilience like I had to be able to keep fighting through and working through my challenges and working how I, I adapted that, um, they, if they haven't got the support and if they are used to having some level of support, remember that they're, they're in a different generation that they will have come through, uh, hopefully had some support in school and college. But if they haven't got it back when they go into teaching, then it seems like there's a gap there as well that we're not... Uh, uh, we're not helping our teachers to show neurodiversity in the classroom from their point of view and that's a good role model for anybody else who's in those classrooms and I think that's that's another sort of issue there another gap there that, that needs to be looked at when you find that with some teachers who who have actually taught people but it's still the stigma there to do with yeah. education itself I'm what I'm hearing from your story and Lucy especially when you're saying about your children's sort of self-awareness and and how that came about but that surely is 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 so crucial that I I call it and it's probably an incredibly non-autistic term being comfortable in your own skin with that is that fair yeah and I think we have to accept that it must it must be a struggle for let's say young people because crikey what what was my skin like when I you know going going from the, I don't know the age of eight to, to, to whenever but Lucy you mentioned it was around about was it sort of 17 type of age perhaps yeah and I'm curious so was that sort of coming from from home from just finding out from self-discovery how was it coming about there were a number of things that that happened in that. I'm an educator, and and I'm a bit of a fighter for my my children. They both need need different things. Um, and my eldest, who left uh, mainstream education in year eight, I fought for things that would allow them to be given opportunities to find out what worked for them and how they could get support. So. Where they might say, so an autistic person, for instance, and particularly an autistic young person might say, no, I don't like that because they don't know what it is. They don't. There'll be a level of anxiety around trying something new. There, there will be a whole range of different reasons why, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm very rigid in, in what I believe in and what I think is going to be right for me. However, as a parent, I also recognise that there has to be a level of stretch and there has to be a level of taking somebody out of their comfort zone. To give them experiences to allow them to understand or allow them to recognize and come to that realization of oh actually i really like that i never thought i would but i really like it an example and i'll give you a real practical example here we were we had occupational therapy sensory integration and occupational therapy um, as part of our our plan and when we would first go to this these sessions and this is as a teenager so my my child was sort of 14, 15 years old. And as a teenager, why am I going in to do this kind of stuff? This is like, oh my God, this is for kids. No, there wasn't any of that. It was, we went in, we would talk, but they would be given the opportunity of what piece of equipment do you fancy using or sitting on today? And it might've been the swing. It might've been a plank. It might've been a bouncy thing, whatever. Just go and have a sit on it. And what happened through those sessions that was within a few weeks, Actually, my child realised and I realised that rocking and being in a hammock or being in a rocking chair has an incredible 
regulatory sensory response for them. And they've never been given the opportunity to do this and find this out before. It was never, they, they, they found out that we found out they were autistic at age 11. So they never had all those things that might happen in primary school. And that has been revelationary for them. And actually has been one of the biggest things that has changed. They now have a rocking stool um, or a rock, yeah, a rocking stool where they sit and do their, their stuff. They have a rocking chair. They want a hammock. All of those kind of things, because they know when they get stressed, they go and rock. And that actually can relax them. Not having had that opportunity, not being able to, to be pushed and stretched into that environment, into that occupational therapist's room, which they didn't want to go into, mm. they would never have understood that. And they would never have had the positive experience of being able to know that's how my brain works. And I understand now my regulation system and I understand proprioception and all these kind of words I'm talking about. Most kids don't get the chance to do that kind of stuff. I do think that some of the sensory things are improving at that toddler age range. Like there's a lot more sensory experiences that are being developed at that young age, but maybe that's a, another conversation. It's not just for that, yeah. for that age range. It's, it's right. a continual development, a, isn't it? Let's think of a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old even, but a 15-year-old, all right? Hormones are raging all over the place. Think of a young lad who's 15, ticking off, whatever right struggling with emotional regulation and struggling with perhaps executive function issues and their initial reaction is the fight response to fight flight and freeze all right however if we can give those young people the tools to help them regulate to help them manage they will have much better outcomes in the educational system and in the workplace and you cut down to a 15 year old yeah. and say hey let's let's sit on a rocking chair or let's bounce on this ball that's hard stuff to do because they just want to go and do something completely different. But exposing them to those opportunities to gently or to to at their level, give them those opportunities to recognise what works for them can be really, really powerful mm. and empowering. It's changed our life. Changed, changed our you see, life. I think what you're saying is so important because it's this. If I was to, to bring it down to two things, certainly in employment, I bring it down to first finding that that level of self-acceptance being comfortable in our own skin the little tactics that help us be it rocking or anything else and secondly it's all about context when we get into the workplace which is why it's it's good i think for our young people to be aware perhaps of some of the things that they might need done a bit differently once they get their yeah. paid job but we're not there yet let's not rush ahead because it's all about context isn't it surely yeah. it, yes. it's um you know i have um a friend of mine whose son ryan in, in crawley and ryan amazing young man the autistic young man and maria won't mind me saying you know her strategies and ryan's strategies about what she's going to tell the the airport for example if they're about to fly to, to Jersey, which is where they love going, it's, it's going to be subtly different from the sorts of things that Ryan might need, say, for a job interview or, or, or whatever. So it's, it's all, there's so much about context and nuance. And, but if, if we can get to that, that first base of being comfortable to maybe even to, to be able to talk about it, perhaps, and then 
once we get to employment, well, it, it surely becomes a bit easier because, well, I might need to tell the employer a bit about that, but but I might not. It might might have very little to do with. But but I think what's clear is that Lucy's children and my niece and nephew and uh, there's something inside them. They're not going to go for jobs that are wildly inappropriate for for the type of people they are. Like like all of us, really. They're go they're going to go with something that perhaps hopefully suits their personalities. I think sometimes we have stereotypes and perceptions of what those people are and that, oh, well, uh, somebody who's on the autistic spectrum isn't creative and can't do anything that's to do with communication, X, Y, Z. And in yeah. actual fact, it is rubbish. It is rubbish. It, it's yeah. all down to the individual and the different type of person. There'll be some things that you, you really need. There's something about that person that you really need to be in your employment. But it doesn't mean to say that they have to do everything as if some as as like somebody else could do the other part for them. I mean, yeah, it, it, we've, we're all supposed to work as a team in in uh, employment, and that's where we should start to look at embracing each other and and sort of moving us to work together. And that we all have different strengths, and you know, we let somebody else mm, do the other part mm, that's mm. a strength. And I think that's that's the other side that we can't be everything in one package it's about embracing those real strengths of different people and acknowledging actually i'm not so good at that part you're better at this would you be able to help me to do it or would you be able to do it for me i think it, there's nothing wrong yeah. with getting help and seeking help um and uh, and working together as a team that's all we've got time for today so join us next time for part two neurodiversity on changing lives through learning